Hey, Jay, how are you? I'm great. How about you? Oh, doing okay. For Friday afternoon, we can't complain. Yep. Things are uh, rolling along down in your neck of the woods, uh, just from seeing some pictures on social media, uh, seeing the first corn planters uh, hit Mississippi and Arkansas, and I'm sure that's uh, something you're hearing or seeing from colleagues down that way. I am. We're uh, at a little pause today. It's coming another rain, and everybody's sort of making last-minute preparations and had just enough time to tune up planters and and get excited and get into the process a little bit last week and this rain after this rain we'll get back to it good deal well last week we talked quite a bit about cotton uh which i thought was a fascinating discussion uh it uh seemed like uh, uh our listeners also enjoyed it because we had uh, almost triple as many as the first one so maybe we're on to something there um but this week we want to we want to dive into corn which um as you uh have some experience in um in the in living in the south that's kind of a a change for folks um can you let's talk about that this week and uh, dive into some tips and tricks and uh, maybe explain some of the the rationale and reasoning why corn is becoming a bigger cash crop down in the south and uh, lead to some agronomic issues that other uh challenges and opportunities i suppose is the best way to put it the appropriate way to put it for uh for growers in your neck of the woods does uh, that sound good to you it does all right so um, first, I guess, kind of building off that conversation we had last week with cotton, um, you know, very, uh, you know, historical crop for southern farmers, uh, particularly in that Mississippi, Arkansas, Louisiana, and Alabama area. Obviously, Texas is, uh, is huge with cotton now. Um, but for farmers in your neck of the woods uh, in Mississippi and the Delta, it was uh, cotton was the crop. It's what it's what defined uh, the areas of the Delta uh, and some some of the surrounding states, and 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 we've had some some cultural changes. I shouldn't say cultural; it's more economic changes, probably more than anything else, that have uh, that have kind of helped, or, you know, made farmers reconsider, or at least consider, I should say, uh, adding other crops into that cotton rotation. Can you give us a a brief historical background, if you would, of of some of those economic challenges that were facing cotton farmers and why they started to adapt some of the corn? Uh, some of the corn into their into their mix and, uh, and and kind of take that conversation for us. Certainly, we corn has been one of the great opportunities in my career to explore the production of corn and agronomic factors and decision making associated with that process. If you look at it long term, cotton had been the crop. You know, we all talk about king cotton and and it being such an influential crop in our system here in the mid south. And it was very important to a lot of people. We had a lot of history with the crop. We had learned how to grow it quite well. It was not without its challenges. And we talked about some of those last week. We had insect resistance. We had the boll weevil present. We had a lot of things that really made cotton a crop that, that was somewhat difficult to deal with. It's, it's quite a challenge. It's a very satisfying experience. But in the last 10 years or so, we had actually in the last 20 years we've begun to learn how to grow grain crops uh, in a way that in all honesty i think surprised a lot of people in the mid-south a lot of that happened because of it was sort of the perfect storm of low cotton prices higher increasing input prices to grow cotton and also the grain uh, prices went way up especially seven or eight years ago that made the interest in growing the grain crops really explode. We, we almost had a shortage of knowledge 
in the ability to do that. Now, we've been soybean producers for a long time, but we have not been traditional corn producing environments. That has led to, uh, in all honesty, for me personally and, and professionally, an opportunity to be able to generate some of that data. And I hope we can talk about a little bit of that through this conversation today. Yeah, you bet. So um, cultural and economic reasons, or I should say, no, I keep coming back to cultural. I keep coming back to that just because I'm so used to, like you said, King Cotton. So more more economic factors driving uh, some acres to shift to corn. And, um, you know, we can talk about ethanol. We can talk about uh, low prices and, and various things like that. But uh, definitely was a game changer for the Mid-South and Southern areas to add corn into that rotation. So um, let's talk through some of those challenges that, that were introduced because of, of corn coming on the scene. It was, it was grown in the area, right? It wasn't, a, a, it wasn't like an introduction of a brand new crop, but um, on the scale that it was grown into where you had probably uh, maybe what, a couple hundred thousand acres of, of corn per state. And that maybe doubled in some instances uh, in a couple of years time. And that really, really kind of probably, like you said, introduced some new factors into decision-making. Can you talk about that a little bit? It, it did, and, and that's one of the places where I have a, a personal stake in this. I, it's very important to me that people have the information they need to try to be a, as successful as possible when we plan and plant and lay out all these crops. And my background was as a, as a cotton person, a cotton entomologist particularly was my training, and as I began to explore the, the corn producing environments, I realized there was a significant difference in the psychology involved between growing the two crops. We've talked about that in a couple of previous podcasts, but I think it's worthy of mention, particularly as we all have a break of, you know, probably a week as we get back into and really into the heart of our corn planting season in the South. If you think about our traditional system that we had been farming in, it was mainly cotton. We had had a cotton as our primary staple crop here. We grew, we planted it. We spent all our time in the season reacting to what happened in the field. We may be reacting to insects. We may be reacting to growth and whether or not we need to apply PGRs to the cotton. It, once we got the crop up and growing, it was something that we really fought with all year trying to accumulate yield potential. To me, the contrast in that it, between corn and cotton is really stark. When you start to think about the, the things that you have to do to grow the best corn crop you can possibly grow, of course the weather's got to cooperate. But we have a significant amount of planning up front that has to be done to properly plant a corn crop. And, and it's not that all that was ignored in cotton, but it's not actually the focus and it's probably not even other than choosing a good variety, it's probably not even the focus of cotton production. Now, your focus is on the decision-making through the year when you're growing cotton. Mm -hmm. You think about corn, there are things that, as I've said previously a couple of times, there are things that you do before you plant corn or as you're planting corn that really determine its yield potential. And if you think about the short list of those things, there are any number of influences that we have and decisions we have to make to plan, properly plan a good corn crop. And, and just a short list of those I was thinking about a few minutes ago, hybrid selection, of course, is very important. Traveling along with hybrid selection on some level are the technologies that you plant, insect protection and, and herbicide tolerance. You've also got decisions to make about seed treatments. Those decisions influence 
really that's one of the first decisions that you make other than deciding to plant corn to start with. Then there are other significant things that happen during the planting process when you get ready to actually put the seed in the ground. And I don't mean to, to put more emphasis on those than, than they're actually due, but they are really influential in the, the establishing the highest yield potential for a cornfield that you can establish. When you start to go down that list of things, the, the one that comes to mind most immediately, because it's the next decision that you're probably going to make after you choose a hybrid and a technology and a seed treatment is planting depth. We've done a tremendous amount of work at the Learning Center with planting depth in corn. There are, if you look at the other traditional southern row crops, typically we get ready to plant those crops. We'll say, well, it's going to come a rain. They're not going to emerge real well, so I'm going to plant them a little bit shallow to make them come up. That's not the correct logic to apply in a cornfield. Now, you've got to do this in each field individually. You've got to do it on the, on the basis of what's going on in the field. But if you look at the impact that planting depth, the appropriate planting depth has on a given cornfield that you plant, it is tremendous. And it's multifold. As I plant the seed the correct depth, with some, which is somewhere in the, na- in the neighborhood of that two-inch range, uh, and, and you got to do that, you know, get, get some guidance about how you need to do that best. But as you get corn planted to the correct depths, you have influences that, that are highly significant. One of those is the quality and quantity of rooting in corn is heavily influenced by planting depth. Corn that's planted too shallow has all sorts of issues with rooting and standability. And, and it just leads into a, a starting out in a, a problematic sort of a scenario. One of the other impacts that we lose sometimes in planting depth in corn is if I plant the seed deep enough, there are a lot of times that it is a, it has a really, really impact, uh, a strong impact on the ability of birds to damage that cornfield. And, and the gist of that is basically if I plant the seed deep enough that the, that the birds can't pull the kernels up and eat them, which is what they do, uh, they just break the tops out of those plants and a lot of them recover and wind up actually we've got data that says most of them recover and have not a hundred percent but most of their yield potential still there even though they, they've had that top broken out of them by the birds trying to pull the kernel up and eat it so that's a pretty big deal you think about population which goes hand in hand those are a couple of decisions that are made together so you're going to plant at a certain depth. You're going to plant a certain population. You've got to set the planter and the machine you're using to do that appropriately. I, I can't emphasize enough to people that, about population in corn. And it's not always the correct decision to plant more seed. Sometimes that's actually the, the wrong decision. There are hybrids that are absolutely unsuitable to be used at higher populations. There are some other hybrids that are clearly not meant to be used at lower populations so or at higher populations so you've got both cases and you need to know that and ask those questions of anyone that you buy corn seed from the other thing is is the distribution of the seed as you plant the crop you know this goes hand in hand with depth a little bit because as you pull the planter through the field and as you influence how that seed is dropped out of the planter units or out of the planter meters and into the seed tubes or speed tubes, whatever you're using, you influence how those seeds are distributed through the process of it moving them around to get them in the dirt. 
And when you do that, there are influences that are sometimes ex external on both the distribution of the seed and on the depth. When you start to plant faster, particularly as you take a planter, there are planters today that are designed to plant at very high speed. They're meant to do that. They do it very accurately. But as you take a, a piece of planting technology that's not necessarily meant to do that and try to plant faster with it, you alter two things happen. You, you draft that planter out of the ground so it rides, you know, there's resistance of the, of the soil pushing the, the planter units up. So a lot of times you don't establish the right depth. And you also wind up with seed that are not distributed evenly or as uniformly as possible down the road. And if you start thinking about the influences that those scenarios have, and all the things that, that influence that, when you see seed that's uniformly spaced down a, a row of corn that's been planted and it's emerged, if you think about it like this, you've got three or four cases that can happen. I could have five seeds where I get them all to come up uniformly and they're evenly spaced. I could have a skip or a double in those planting somehow or another. Well, if I have just an outright skip where a plant is, is missing, that plant didn't come up for some reason or a bird got it or, or something else happened. You could also have the case where you had the five plants and then you have a double. And that's two that came up, you know, in pretty close proximity to each other. Those are, are typically seeds that uh, didn't singulate in the hopper. And, and our research says that that's actually not such a big deal. You don't want any more of it than, than you know, absolutely necessary or absolutely cut it to the to the lowest level you can. But that's not such the issue. What you really don't want to have is a skip. And, and you don't want to have missing plants because we know the driver of yield in a cornfield is the number of cobs that we harvest primarily. Now, there are all kinds of things that, that tie into that, like flex, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But I would think through that whole process as I'm getting ready to plant a cornfield in the next 10 days or two weeks. And so let's talk about that. Uh, you mentioned the depth. I kind of come back to the top four things you just mentioned there. Um, and, and when you're talking about depth, and sometimes it varies by field, also magic planters, uh, your population, how – how does one just for the layperson, someone like myself, but also there's uh, there's people actually uh, so some city friends of mine who listen to this, believe it or not. So uh, a little education on that. How does that all work? How does a farmer figure that out? If you can give like the quick one on one version to someone uh, who may not be familiar with how someone plants at a certain depth, a certain population at a certain width uh, across an entire field. Can you explain that briefly? Well, the way you do that and, and it's, it's one of the pieces of uh, guidance I would give anyone that buys corn seed and tries to grow a corn crop, whether it's, you know, corn in your garden or otherwise, understand the agronomic and all agronomic decisions you have to make. When you look into all of that, the first thing you need to do is ask the, the provider of the seed, okay, in my system, whether it's irrigated, whether it's dry land, whether it's single row or twin row, what population do you recommend for this product? Everyone who buys seed ought to ask that of everyone they buy seed from. Because there's lots of information out there. There's lots of ways to make better decisions. When you start looking at the sort of the more uh, temporal decisions you have to make, like planting depth in a certain field that you're starting to plant, we know and the science says that we need to be in that two-inch deep range. You know, that in many cases is probably an inch and a half deeper than we would plant cotton a lot of times. Because a lot really? of times plant huh. cotton and just barely cover it up just huh. enough to get it to come up 
Uh, it's certainly different than what we do with a crop like rice. You know, soybeans are somewhere in, in the middle. So when you get to making that kind of decision, you've got to realize that, number one, it's different than what you've done historically. Number two, it has a, a real influential it's a really influential component of the contributing factors that add up to making a, an acceptable corn yield. And then you got to allow for all the things like moisture and soil type and all the things that are associated with that. So if you have to plant deeper to, to, to as we call it, chase moisture to get the corn to come up, that that's okay. And from in most cases in corn, you got to do all this within some reason, you know, you can't plant deeper just for the fun of it, but <laughs> Uh, you need to understand those things. And, and the guidance that I give a lot of people is if, if in planting corn, when you get ready to plant the crop, if the decision is plant a little bit deeper, or a little bit shallow, generally speaking, lean toward the deeper side. Mm -hmm. because there are lots of positives associated with doing that. Gotcha. And then uh, just a, a quick little detour, because I know you want to dive into some of the agronomic uh, factors that uh, once a crop gets going, but um, you know, would it be, so, I guess where my head goes is, you know, we talked about some of the economic reasons and the, the, the shift of acres to corn and more farmers growing more corn acres. Would it be an observation that I have as I listen to you talk is, you know, the technology has come such a long way with planter technology and, you know, mapping your fields and, you know, the singulation and all that good stuff. Would it be fair to say that the farmers who are in the South who kind of are new to corn farming kind of came along at that right time in the last five to 10 years where, that technology, um, it doesn't reduce decision-making or it doesn't make decision-making any lighter. As you went through the last 15 minutes here, you've talked a lot of, a lot of decisions that need to be made, but it's a, maybe easier, if you will. Does that make sense what I'm trying to get at there? Is it, makes, it makes a great deal of sense. And, and when you look at our program at the, at the Scott Learning Center, we basically have a almost an unlimited selection of planter equipment from probably the most primitive anyone would still be using all the way out through the most advanced. So we go way back into the planting technology because when, when we started trying to grow corn in the, in the mid South, deep mid South in a pretty big way. And we did this also, or I was not at the learning center at that time, but they actually took an older set of planting technology which had been traditionally used to plant cotton and started planting corn with it. Well, that was not ideal. It was not nearly, in all honesty, precise enough to do what you need to do in a cornfield the way it needs to happen. If you look in the last 10 years, probably in the last five, certainly, planting technology has come so far, and it is much, much more precise and it enables that placement. It, en it enables you to do two things you have to do in tandem. Number one, you got to know you need to make that decision. And number two, you got to figure out how to make it happen after you make the decision to do it. So when you get all that planting technology out and start to plant corn, make sure that it's in the best shape possible because it's engineered to do certain things and it will do those things if you operate it, you know, in the way that's recommended and you've got it set appropriately, and you and you understand that you need to do those things up front. And that, to me, has been the greatest learning out of all this. And I think ultimately it will make our agriculture uh, stronger in the end because we'll understand a little bit more. And, I, and I'm not saying we did something wrong to start with, but sure. we'll understand how much those things contribute to the final result out of the 
as as an experience uh, as we go through this experience of doing this. And, and then just building on the planner technology, just uh, and you alluded to this a little bit, so maybe take a little detour in this conversation. But um, back to what we talked about with cotton last week, the breeding capabilities of that corn plant are so much further along than they were even 10 years ago to where, um, as you said, each hybrid has such, such unique characteristics. Um, and, and that's just, a, that, that to me is just mind boggling that, you know, a farmer has so many options and maybe I'm oversimplifying that, but has a lot more options based on, on field conditions, where he lives, what he wants to grow, what population that, that there's a lot of, of choice out there for a farmer to make stronger agronomic decisions. Is that, is that fair to say as well in the last 10 years? I actually think it is. And, and that brings me to the, to, to the point that I really wanted to talk about toward the end of the conversation today. If you look at the impact that agronomic inputs have in corn, some, you know, most of the decision making is up front. We understand that some of the things we do in the field influence potential of the crop during the season. But if you think about the timing of agronomic inputs and delays in fertility or delays in irrigation and, and, and all of those things, they all are influential in the crop. But it all goes back to having the seed products available and the, and the hybrids available to use in the system. And there have been tremendous advances, in my estimation, made in the corn hybrids that are available for use in the South. And if you think about what's happened, it, it really is a very, very interesting process. And I think it's a, it's a great example of where science has, has applied itself and made some progress. You think about the corn hybrids we had back, you know, 15 years ago. And we grew corn much, much further back than that. But if you go back to recent times, you know, 15 years ago, basically almost all the products that we grew were really tall, high ear placement, relatively high ear placement products. They were, they did pretty well in our system here in the South, but they honestly probably didn't have the local influence. Some of them didn't anyway, have the local influence that they really needed to be optimized for use in our environments. When, when you look at some of the older things that were very successful here, uh, there's one that comes to mind particularly it's very, very high ear placement. There are a lot of years that I can't touch the ear shank, bottom of the ear shank in it from the ground, you know, reaching up. Well, that's an ear that's seven, seven and a half feet off the ground. You look at the, the types of products and what's changed in today's world, those older corns had pretty good yield potential, but they also had a risk associated with having that, that ear so high off the ground and having such a big stalk and that that risk is lodging. If you think about the the influence that the location of the ear has up and down the stalk, uh, we've got some learning center data from several years ago, and we do it on some level every year, where we go out and measure ear height. And it varies greatly depending on the product you're talking about, but it looks like the ear heights have been lowered in the range of, you know, 14, 15 inches. Some of them as low as much as 20 inches lower. And when you, when you bring the ear down on the stalk, you ultimately wind up a, a lot of times with less stalk, number one, above it, because it, it's usually on a shorter type of a plant. But the really significant part of that is that you've lowered the, the height of the ear, and that gives the ear less leverage to break the stalk in the wind in the event that we get 
you know, some sort of bad weather event that tries to lodge the corn or break the stalk. Wow. So, and we've measured that. Uh, I actually went out and measured the height and weight of ears and calculated momentum and treated it like a physics problem. Like you, <laughs> it, it's uh, basically the same way you put the bags in an airplane. You know, the, uh, further from the center of gravity the bags are in a plane, the less they can weigh because they got more leverage to move the, the plane around. And we did all that for corn plants. And all that data is available online somewhere if you, if you care to see it and study it. But it, you can show big differences in, in the effect that the placement of ears has uh, on the stalk lodging that's associated in the corn we're so, growing here today. Yeah, so to give me a quick little history lesson on that. So you're seeing ears in the south or other previous hybrids are sometimes seven feet off the ground. Why is that? That's just was that corn's natural tendency from yeah. thousands of years ago, or what was that? What, what was causing that? Or is that just how it was? It was just those types of those were the types of hybrids that did well in our system here, and they right. were, that were chosen to be grown. And we still had a range of products. Just so happens that in recent times that. The, the morphology of those t- of the corns that have been screened here and, and more importantly, bred here. Uh, we've got corn products, not all of them, but we've got corn products today that are being bred in this environment specifically for you. Now, I don't have a background to compare them to all the stuff grown in the Midwest, but if you look, that has to be part of the influence is that we're, you know, the, the breeding process is screening out some of those things that have more risk and less yield and and bringing through the, the process some of the ones that have uh, a reduced level of risk and higher yield potential. So, yeah, and I guess generally speaking, you know, you that's that's feedback you've taken from, from growers, I would assume, or at least, you, you know, kind of have talked through them with that process of like, Hey, if we move an ear down 14 to 15 inches, you're going to see these benefits. Is that, is that kind of how that yeah. process goes? Well, I mean, it's not, it's not a conversation that's been proven in reality that, yeah. you know, when we start to get hurricane type weather events and bad thunderstorms and all that kind of stuff going on here, some of these corns stand up better than others. And not all of it's related to ear placement. Some of it's related to stalk strength. Some of it's related to disease tolerance. There's a, a pretty complex thing that happens there all at one time, but however it it has happened, all those things contribute, and they've they've all made some contribution to the process. Oh, fascinating! Uh, I'm sure that's a whole other conversation too with a corn breeder to figure out, uh, you know, what the what the strengths and uh, challenges of breeding for that mid south farmer are, uh, or southern farmer, I should say, for corn in particular. Even with cotton, that's a that's a whole other show. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Go ahead. Well, I, I was going to add to that. Part of the part of what we have also observed, and one of the things that I would caution everyone about a little bit, is if you think about the pollination issues that we had had historically in corn in the mid south, they happen for a lot of reasons, and it's it's almost impossible to tease the reasons apart and figure out which one is more significant, but. If you look, the, one of those was that, that we planted corn later, sometimes later than we should have. Uh, we planted sometimes hybrids that maybe weren't, you know, the best adapted in our environment, and we'd wind up with pollination problems. And, and why would you plant them later, like, and define later for, for someone like me in the Midwest? Well, as you planted them later and exposed them to heat during the pollination process. But would you plant them later because you wanted to get cotton in first because that was the, the key crop then? or 
we actually probably didn't put enough emphasis on the need to plant corn early and get it growing gotcha. off as early as possible. And you also have to consider that historical basis of working in cotton. The developmental threshold in cotton is, is a lot lower, 10 or 15 degrees lower than it is in corn. So if you've been growing cotton all that period of time and said, I'm going to go out and plant corn in the cold dirt, that just didn't seem like a good idea. <laughs> gotcha. So now we've learned, you know, you back up and corn is a very hardy crop when it's trying to emerge. It does all kind of things that, that are, uh, that allow it to deal with those cooler temperatures. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. Um, you wanted to talk, you, we were talking briefly via email. You went to mention something about flex. Um, what do you mean by that? Explain it for the, the novice like myself, but also, uh, um, hit on some of those points that are top of mind for farmers in that neck of the woods. Well, flex is one of those things that's very interesting to me. And it, and it comes from somewhat the experience in cotton in that we know cotton is a very compensatory crop. In other words, it can lose yield in one part during one part of the season and, and recover from it in another. And it does that by either making more fruit, you know, it, it displaces the fruit up and down the stalk or, it makes heavier fruit and there's all kinds of data about that conversation to be had, but that some of that compensation that can occur in corn is something we refer to as flex. And, and the short way to, to, to talk about that is really in response to population. And we plan a group of corn hybrids every year on the learning center from really high population all the way down to really low populations. And I'm talking from 10,000 planted up to 55,000 planted. Our traditional planting population here in the Mid-South would be in the low 30,000s now. Uh, historically, it'd been in the probably the low 20,000s trying to manage standability. But we talk about flex, and what that means is, roughly, and it's deeper than this, what that means is as population goes down, uh, we have an ability and the environment, as population goes down and resources become more available, we have the ability to make a bigger ear on a given stalk. The catch to that is the ears will get to a certain size and they won't get any bigger. That's one reason that population is so, so, so important in corn. You have to choose the right population knowing that the number of cobs harvested drives yield. The, the historical conversation that has gone on about flex has been very much, in my opinion, sort of like people viewed it as one trait that was one thing you know, it, it was that simple. Mm -hmm. And when you when you got ready to talk about a new corn hybrid with people, they wanted to know, is it fixed or is it flex? Well, it's really not that simple. And, and I think all of this is tied together in that conversation to say, all right, what is flex? If you think about it, there are five or six things that all add up to make this mysterious component of corn production that we call flex. Well, one of those is how many kernels actually form on the cob around, so girth width, you know, girth around the, the ear. So how many around is the cob? That's influenced somewhat genetically. It's also influenced by the availability of fertility and thereby sugars when the corn is very early in its life, you know, four leaves or so. The other one is how many, how many rows form? How, how long is the ear? That's a part of flex. Well, those are the parts that are, they're determined very early and, and the number long is formed somewhere between 
when the number of rounds formed and the next few leaf stages. Those are the parts that we readily recognize as, as flex. It's in, they're influenced by some of the agronomic inputs that we could apply, but they're not the only parts. And, and I would be, I could make the case today that they're probably not the most significant part. They're very important to consider. You need to do all the stuff right up front. But when you start to look at it, there are other pieces of this thing that we call flex. Part of it is pollination. So I formed rows around, I formed numbers long. I've got, also got to pollinate those. So how many pollinate? Well, that's a, that's a part of this equation. So that's why pollination is so important in corn. We've got to get it pollinated. For that reason, one of the cautions I would issue to everyone is be careful when you apply things to corn fields when you can see the tassels. If you mess up pollination in a cornfield, there's very little opportunity to, re to recover from it because it happens once. It's not like in cotton, it happens over 70 or 80 days. If you mess pollination up in a cornfield, you gotta recover next year. You won't do it this year. The other piece of that, and this is where we really get into the modern times is how many kernels abort? Because it's pretty common knowledge to everyone that's ever grown cotton that the cotton plant sheds fruit. It aborts fruit. It does that in response to stresses, in, to, in response to the availability of sugars. All of those things happen because the plant senses that it can't sustain the number of fruiting forms that have bloomed on the plant. We'll get into that for cotton in, in a great deal more detail eventually. Well, corn plant does the same thing. It'll, it'll form those kernels. It'll pollinate the kernels. And at some point after that time, it it's programmed genetically to say, okay, I can't support all these kernels and I'm going to abort some of them. And they're the ones on the tip of the ear. And it's what we commonly refer to as tip back. And the more, the, the more resources are limited and they can be limited for a lot of reasons. I could plant a really high population and run out of fertilizer. I could run out of water. I could have cloudy days. I could do all kinds of things like that that will cause the plant to say, I can't support all those kernels. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get rid of some of them. I'm just not gonna be able to fill them. You've also got the component of how deep the kernels are on the cob. And then that is, is another one of the things that comes along and is, is a part of this flex conversation. The one thing I would point out to people though is, there, are, there is a piece of, of what people consider compensation in corn that we over rely on at times and that's how many ears a stalk can make. We have a conversation every year that someone comes up and says, I, I don't want to replant, but I think it's okay because I see two ears on a bunch of those stalks and I'm going to make the difference up doing that. Well, I started this conversation because of those kind of conversations. And I can tell you today, if you have a whole lot of corn plants in a cornfield that have more than one ear on them, your population around those plants is somewhere on the order of about 15,000 by the data we've had previously. And you're not going to be happy with the yield potential you get at 15,000. So if you have a stand issue in corn, yes, flex, all these mechanisms can help make some of the difference up, but they will not recover from a really bad stand, you know, an erratic stand and, and problematic things like that. Wow. It's, uh, it's an incredibly complex, or at least the, the 30 minutes we've talked here, it's, uh, it's things I've heard individually from farmers. Uh, you've laid out that whole, uh, there's a couple dozen factors that go into impacting what your corn yield is going to end up looking like at the end of the year. And I think you, you teed this up really well of, you know, you're sitting in the shed right now while it's raining. Um, 
you know, and I think we even talked about this on the first episode we did, which is you got to be making these these planting decisions and these agronomic decisions now. Uh, you can't be making them in the middle of the season. You're, you're, it's not that the you're not going to win it in uh, March, I guess, but uh, you could lose it in March maybe as a mantra to consider. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, it would. Yeah, I mean, you'll be generally happy with the results either way, but my point in the matter is why not make it better if I can? Right. Time to do that. Yeah. Well, any other things top of mind for you guys as we uh, wrap up this uh, second week, or I guess, uh, yeah, second full week of March and head into, uh, well, we're past the middle of March. So uh, things are going to get hopping here soon, as you alluded to earlier. Any other uh, things top of mind for you? Well, I would just issue an invitation to everyone. We'll, I know everybody's going to be busy in the next little while, but we're around the Learning Center. And if there's anything we can do to help, uh, give us a call. We'll be happy to try to make it as uh, help talk through the decisions and all the process as best we can. And, and when yeah. when did you guys plant at uh, at Scott? When do you guys plan on getting the field? As it dries up. As soon as it dries up. <laughs> they're, they're polishing on planters right now. Yeah, they're just itching to get out there, right? Yep. It's time. All right. Well, thanks, Jay. We'll talk again next week. Uh, have a good one, and we'll talk talk then. All, all right. right. Thank uh, you. Bye.